Welcome to the City Alliance Church Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our messages. Our prayer is that you would listen, learn, and be inspired to love God, love others, and serve the world. Subscribe and share these messages to bless others. Here's this week's message. Good morning, church. Um, As we continue uh, in our series seven about the seven churches of uh, the revelation today we go to church number two uh this is directed uh to the angel of the church in smyrna this comes from revelations 2 uh, verses 8 through 11. to the angel of the church in smyrna write these are the words of him who is first and last who died and came to life again i know your afflictions and your poverty yet you are rich I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer in persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of God. Bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, may we, be, uh, may we be able to rise to the call that you give the church in Smyrna, Lord, that we would be able to suffer um, trials in this life for the promises of glory in the next, Lord, that we might be faithful even when the world tells us uh, a different story or asks us to do something different or demands something different of us. Lord, may we uh, do what is right even when doing what is wrong is very easy. Um, Lord, I pray uh, for Jamie today as he gives the message. I pray that the ears in the, in the church will hear uh, what he is delivering. Um, and I pray for the people here today uh, just for uh, spiritual breakthrough and spiritual openness for what is about to be delivered. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. That video is so intense. I feel like Jason Bourne is about to jump out of the baptistry, and I'm going to like get in one of those fights with him. Um, but that, I hope that's not going to happen. I was going to say it's not, but I don't know. And you never know what's going to happen when you get up here. Um, welcome to part two of the seven series. Uh, we are walking through the seven churches in Revelation, as Seth said earlier. Um, and today we're taking church two. And I want to ask you, I want to just take a moment here to ask you, how are you doing? You guys, are the, you guys are the smart ones. I mean, you're here on uh, Spring Forward weekend, so you got through that hurdle. You had, to, you had to work your way through Snowmageddon out there in mid-March, and uh, it's also freezing in the congregation, uh, in the sanctuary. That's why I'm wearing this vest, because uh, it's very cold. But there's a lot going on in our world, right? And, and I know each one of you that, that come here, 
that sit in the pews before me are going through things. Things are happening in your lives. Different things for all of us. We're all in different stages of life. We're all experiencing different relational or life difficulties. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I want to recognize that this morning. And I want you to stop and sit and think, Whew, how am I doing? And I, and I want you to be thinking about that as we look at this letter to the churches um, because I believe that, that these letters to the churches are not just to that church. They're to all of the churches. And um, we are the church. You are the church. And so I'm hoping this morning that God will speak to you through this passage. We're in the second chapter of the book of Revelation. And I encourage you, if you have your workbook, your seven workbook, to turn to page 12. The text is in there. And there's also a place to take Sunday sermon notes. And they didn't know I was going to be preaching this week because there's only a small space. It's going to be a long time. So much writing. Um, that's not true. Uh, but Revelation refers to the literal revelation, like a vision that, that John saw. This is John, uh, John, the writer of the Gospel of John. John, who self-describes himself, self-describes, self-describes his relationship with Christ as the one who Jesus loved. It could, be, uh, it could be said that John was the closest disciple to Jesus. It's John's perspective. It's John's vision. Um, John also wrote three epistles, uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, and John wrote Revelation. So he's responsible for five of what we call the books of the New Testament. John was um, imprisoned on the island of Patmos, and Jesus appeared to him and gave him this vision. Now, John gives a description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 that is magnificent. It's many verses long, and we're going to refer to it again here in a moment. But imagine how closely Jesus was known to John. But when John sees him at the moment of this revelation, he's very different. This is the resurrected, the all-powerful Christ that stands before him. And so John, who, who knows Jesus well, is is moved to write this long description of what Jesus is like in chapter 1. And Jesus instructs John to write these things down so that everyone could hear. And he begins this revelation with seven small letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, which is right close to where John is in prison. Uh, he's on this little island off the coast. Um, and then he goes on to ex ex describe in apocalyptic fashion the end times. And we're going to be focusing on the seven churches at the beginning uh, uh, of this book, of this revelation. Uh, I want to remind you, and I, and I did already allude to this, that we are the church. Like last week, Luke and I were sitting next to each other, or together in the back where we sit. And uh, Luke was doing his typical fidget this way, fidget that way, lay this way, lay that way. I said, hey, Luke, come with me for a second. And I took him out in the, in the foyer and I said, Luke, listen, you are the church. You are the church. And this is your time to worship God and to sing his praise and to hear what he has to say to you. So I want you to go back in there with me and I want you to sit up straight and listen. And when we stand up and sing, I want you to stand up and sing. And I want you to hear what God has to say to you. And that's kind of the attitude that I want to come to this passage with this morning. 
And this is really the attitude we should have every morning when we come to church, is we are here to praise, to worship, to hear from God. And boy, how glorious was his praise this morning. I really enjoyed singing those songs, powerful, hearing everyone's voices. And I pray that God will be speaking to us in this book. Um, I want to tell you this right off the bat, and I'm telling you this so you can actually write it down in your book, uh, because all, five, all seven of these letters begin with, well, they actually all have the exact same outline. They have the exact same outline. They begin with the addressee, which says to the angel in the church of whatever location it is. Today it's Smyrna. And that angel could be understood uh, as an actual angel, angelic being overseeing that church, or it could be the uh, messenger also refers to an elder or pastor that oversees that congregation. Probably in this, in this context, it means elder or pastor that oversees, given the information um, in the body of these messages. Um, not to say that there's not angelic beings overseeing every church, uh, but this probably refers to the elder or the pastor. The second passage is... Uh, the second part of the outline is the sender. Now, this is interesting because Jesus is the sender of all of these messages, but uh, he sort of reintroduces himself to each one of these churches using a snippet of the description that God, J- John gives in Revelation chapter 1. So that long description that, that John gives of Jesus, Jesus takes just a portion of that and uses that as his introduction to each one of these letters. And all of the introductions are different in the way he introduces himself. And all of them have something to do specifically with that particular church. So you have the addressee and the sender. And you can write, there's four of these. You can write these four down. And you can, you can begin to fill these in whenever the preacher gets boring. You can just go through. Let's just skip ahead to the other churches and fill them in. Just in case we get boring. There's something productive to do. So after the sender... Well, I should say as an example, so last week we talked about the church in Ephesus and how, about the fact that they were doing all the right things, which is good, right? It wasn't that good because they had all of the right motions, but they didn't have the right motivation, right? They weren't serving out of a love for Christ. They'd, they'd begun to do it out of a sense of duty or a sense of just rote. This is what we do. And they had lost their love. And they had the action, but it wasn't coming from a heart that was transformed. And the actions aren't what Jesus wants from us, right? He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts to be so engaged, so in love with him, that we overflow in the actions. And he was reminding the churches, uh, the church in Ephesus, that they had lost their first love. And so he introduced himself using the phrase, I am the one who stands among the seven lampstands. I'm the one that is among you, so close to you, and hear this, so close to us, that he sees not only our actions, but he knows the motives of our heart. Jesus was reminding the church in Ephesus that he is right there. He not only sees what they're doing, but he knows why they do it. He knows where their hearts are. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I pray, it's a great comfort to me just to be able to say, Jesus, I know you know my heart. I know you know my heart. I can't even express it right now. I don't even know what words to say. But it's a great comfort to me that you know my heart. You know my motivations. And that's what he wants to remind us. And that's what he reminded the church in Ephesus when he introduced himself in that way. So the introduction is pretty important. 
And we'll be talking about the introduction to Smyrna in just a moment. The body is the next part. So you've got your addressee, you've got the sender, you've got the body of the message, which you might guess contains the, the message specific to that church, which again has broad application also to us. I'm going to stop saying that just so you know when I say church, that means us, that means you, that means me. But in the body, uh, the, it always begins with the phrase, I know. In five of the letters, it says, I know your deeds. In today's letter, it says, I know your afflictions. And, you know, I left one out, so you're not flipping through to find which one it is. It's the next church. It's Pergamum. And he says, I know where you live. That sounds a little creepy. Uh, but he knows where they live. And he talks about the context and their faith in their context next week. So the body... Uh, contains a message from Christ, and that message always tells them something that they need to know, they need to be aware of. It's, in a sense, an evaluation of their body by Christ himself, the head of the body. And then finally, uh, there is a close to each one of the letters. And the close always begins with some semblance of the phrase, He who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, he's saying, listen. And he's saying, who has ears to hear, let him hear. You hear in that, right? That he's not just talking about what you audibly take in. He's saying, take action. Take heed to what I am telling you. If you can hear this, then do it. There is an application. There is a call. There is a response that he is calling for. And so as we look at this letter, and at each of the letters, uh, you need to know that God's addressing us, and he is using each one of these four uh, parts of the outline. And so this morning, we're going to look at a letter to the church of Smyrna. And it's interesting to know that, uh, oh, there's a bunch of letters in here. It's interesting to note that um, these seven churches were on an actual postal route, and this is how they, this is where the mail went, is one to the other. And so Smyrna received their letter. Um, from Christ, and it began as they all begin with the addressee. It says, uh, Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna um, is, is, an area, it was, is in an area that is now called Turkey, uh, modern-day Turkey. So I wanted to get a picture of modern-day Turkey for you. Um, this is, uh, Brandon, this didn't go off the way you thought. Ah, it's terrible. That, okay, there's a real turkey, and we can go to the next slide. This shows the actual turkey. Okay, here is Turkey, uh, and here is Smyrna right here, <clears throat> and it, this isn't uh, immediately evident, but uh, Athens, Greece is right across here, so very close, and it's a very important port city, uh, a very wealthy city, and um, it is actually the only city of the seven churches uh, in Revelation that is still a city, and it's actually called Izmir. Um, it's a um, Izmir, Turkey. I like to call Izmir. My brother, who has been there, says Izmir. So I think it's Izmir, Turkey. Uh, it's not Izmir, it's Izmir. So it's a modern-day city. It was a large city in Jesus' day uh, of about 250,000 people. Uh, and today, Izmir has uh, over 4 million people. So it's a very large place. Matter of fact, when my brother said he was in Ephesus, and he went, and he didn't really want to go to Izmir because it was so big. It's just a huge city. Uh, but it is a beautiful, beautiful city. It's about 35 miles from Ephesus. Uh, when I was researching this, I was looking at some of these beautiful pictures and thinking about all the rich history that you could learn if you were, uh, if you were to visit that area. There's actually a tour you can take. Um, it's a four-day tour. You can go visit all the seven sites 
uh, of the churches. So I, I began preparing this like a while ago, and I proposed that I take that tour and the church send me. And I, I, I said to bring back good pictures, and I might bring back a rock or two from there. And like, you know, maybe Paul touched this rock, I, but they didn't go for it. Uh, Nathan, I don't know what's up. Uh, I didn't get to go, but you can go. Uh, but it's an absolutely gorgeous area. And the city of Smyrna is, that has become Izmir, the ruins of that ancient city are in, in sort of the middle of this town. And you can see some of those right here. You see, this is the Agora, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And you'll see some of the modern buildings in the background. They're still digging up and putting together pieces of ancient Smyrna. And so they haven't finished putting it all back together. But I can't imagine whose job it is to dig up the rocks and figure out how they go back together. Smyrna is, um, was the home of the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer, the Greek poet Homer. And there are many Im important influential people, um, particularly in the church, uh, in the town of Smyrna. And we'll talk about some of those a little bit later. That's, that is Homer. I'm sure you recognize him. Um, let's move on to the next point. So that is the addressee, and that tells you a little bit about the area of Smyrna. We'll talk about that more later. But the author, as discussed earlier, Jesus is using a snippet uh, from the description in Reve Revelation chapter 1. In this particular letter, he chooses to introduce himself as the one who is the first and the last. The first and the last. And you might wonder why Jesus chooses this portion for Smyrna. Uh, the, the phrase, the first and the last, it's in Revelation 120, I believe, 18, somewhere in there. That phrase is a quote from Isaiah 44, 6, when God is actually identifying himself to his people. Once again, he does this a few times. But he says, I am the first and the last. I am Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. Apart from me, there is no God. And so when Jesus is introducing himself as the first and last, what he is saying is, I am God, I am the only God. And he's speaking to the church in Smyrna who is suffering because they live in a city full of gods and temples. And as a matter of fact, one of those temples in Smyrna, and it was the first temple in Asia Minor to the god of Rome, Roma. Rome literally made up gods. They all, they all made them up. But Rome literally made up gods because they were jealous of the Greek gods. Uh, I saw a meme the other day of, uh, of a guy peeking over like longingly at something someone was reading. And it, it was the Greeks. And the thing they were reading was gods. And Rome was going, ooh, I'd like one, I'd like one of those. Because literally they watched Christians, how they behaved, and they saw how important belief was to unite people. Previous to that, it was, it was purely power. Their whole mode of operation was power, oppression. But they realized this does not get us the desired result. Look how these people with belief act. And look how we can manipulate people through their belief. We need some gods like the Greeks have. And so they came up with Roma. And in Smyrna was the first Asia Minor temple to the god of Rome. And you were to make annual tribute to this God. And if you did not make annual tribute to this God, it had consequences. When you made that tribute, you received a token that identified you as an active Roman citizen. And if you did not have that token, you did not have, in a sense, your, your card to do business in Smyrna. Or really, in anywhere in the empire of Rome. And as we'll learn, the Christians in Smyrna were being persecuted because they didn't have that card. Because they worshipped the one true God. 
the only God. And Jesus is reminding them, you are correct. I am the one and the only God. It's me. And I'm speaking to you. My people who are persecuted because of my name. And Jesus wants to remind us this morning that he is the one and only. And we have to think about what gods we might be paying homage to today. We don't have temples sitting around to foreign gods, but we do have places of worship all around that take our homage. And I want you to be thinking about those things. But that's why Jesus mentions the first and last. One other thing I'll mention quickly is that Smyrna in Greek, in ancient Greek, means myrrh, literally means myrrh. And to my mind, anyway, the first and the last in myrrh reminds me that the fact that the very first thing Jesus was given that was recorded in the Bible was myrrh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is a resin uh, sap from a thorny myrrh tree. And the last thing Jesus was given in the New Testament was myrrh. It was given to him for his burial. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea carried the cross and then uh, didn't carry, but he was responsible for burying Jesus. And Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, and Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus brought myrrh and aloe to bury, to prepare Jesus' body for burial. 75 pounds of it. It's interesting also to note that myrrh uh, was exclusively exported from the, the city of Smyrna. They had exclusive rights to export and sell myrrh. And it was actually worth more than gold by weight. It was very expensive. It had medicinal uses. It, had, uh, it, it smelled good. You can, there's several references in the Old Testament of, from various directions of how good myrrh smells. But it was also the first and last thing that Jesus was given. And that came to my mind about uh, his introduction to himself. He also introduced himself, introduced himself further as the one who died and came up to life again. And this is a reference that would be missed on no Smyrnian resident because Smyrna was an ancient, ancient city. It was populated as, as long ago as 11 B.C. Uh, but it was conquered and destroyed in 6 B.C. by an Ionian king. And we're talking about empires that we don't ever talk about. Uh, and it lay in ruins for some 300 years. When Alexander the Great then conquered that area, uh, he and took that over, he sat on a hillside, so the story goes, and dreamed of rebuilding that city into its former glory and even greater. And he was not able to do that, but later Roman emperors did do that, and the city was reborn. The city of, of Smyrna was reborn in even greater fashion than it had been before. And so it was known as the Resurrection City. It was literally referred to as the city that was laid to rest and came to life again. And so Jesus is identifying himself again with them. And he's also calling to mind the resurrection, which is an important background to this entire letter. The power of the resurrection and what it empowers the Smyrnian Christians and empowers us to do and how it empowers us to live. And so that's how Jesus chose to introduce himself. Easy to read over. Easy to miss how important and how poignant his words are there. So the body of the letter, again, we said this does not start with, I know your deeds. It starts with, I know your afflictions. 
And I'm just to say at the outset, the main point of this letter is Jesus is, is looking at them, letting them know he's with them, but he's also saying to them, you are, and he's commending them, because you are choosing faith over fear. And the message to us in this letter overall is that we must choose faith over fear. And I'm going to ask you to say that with me. Choose faith over fear. And I, and I want you to rehearse that in your mind because we do not often recognize how often we choose to live out of fear rather than faith. Every time we sin, we've chosen fear over faith. I'm afraid if I obey Christ, my needs won't be met. I won't be happy. I won't be satisfied. I, I am fearful. I can't do what Jesus asked me to do because I'm afraid that I won't be provided for. But what about this? If I do that, what about this? Choosing fear over faith. I can't witness to my coworkers because I have to go to work the next day. Right? Choose fear over faith. And Jesus is commending the Smyrnian Christians. You are doing so well. I know your afflictions, and I know that you are choosing faith over fear every single time. Keep it up. Keep it up. Now, uh, the word for affliction is, um, is translated pressed or oppressed. It means to live in, uh, in a constricted fashion. The word he uses here for, um, for affliction is the same one that's used in 2 Corinthians 4.8. Now, if you were at our marriage seminar, you will remember this. Our speaker was looking for, uh, was looking for funny anecdotes. And so he happened to be meeting with one of the elderly ladies in his congregation, so he's just He's looking for some of these anecdotes. So he wanted to start his conversation by saying, hey, what's the funniest thing you've heard lately? And so she goes on to say, well, I was at my mammogram the other day. And he's thinking, oh, geez, <laughs> I don't want to know about this. I don't need a mammogram story from one of my elderly parishioners or from any of my parishioners. And she said, but they, my, my doctor's office, they happen to be Christians. And they put verses up all over. And right next to the mammogram machine, do you know that they put 2 Corinthians 4.8? Does anybody remember what that says? 2 Corinthians 4.8 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. And my wife described to me that that's a pretty accurate description of mammogram. I know nothing about them. Um, but that is the word that... that that John is using here to describe and Jesus is using to describe their difficulty. Um, that was also a word that was used to describe an ancient Roman torture, which involved the, the person who was being tortured laying down, and they would lay progressively heavier stones on that person's chest until they could no longer breathe, became more and more labored, until they either got what they wanted from that person, which in some cases, as you'll learn, was a, was a recanting of their faith, or information where they simply let them expire slowly under the weight of those stones. And there were, four, uh, there were three stones that were laid on the chest, so to speak, of the Christians at Smyrna. The first one was poverty. The first one was poverty. They were impoverished, and we mentioned it before. Uh, they were impoverished because they could no longer do business in the area. They, could, they didn't have that token. They did not bow to Caesar. 
And so they couldn't do business. They couldn't sell. They couldn't buy. They had difficulty in everything. And the word in Greek that is translated poverty here is actually, it's not just they were short on pocket change. Poverty here means this is like the abject poverty of a beggar. It means that it was likely that their possessions were even taken from them. And they were left, possibly homeless, without possession and without the ability to earn or buy. They were seriously impoverished. It wasn't just an inconvenience. It was a life-changing reality to them. And yet they continued to choose faith over fear. This is the mindset Paul talked about in Philippians 4. This is an oft-misused verse. Paul said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's actually translated in the, all, in the NIV a little better. It says, I can do all of this who strengthens me through him who gives me strength. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Chuck Swindoll is that God is more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. God is more concerned with your character than he is your comfort. That means choosing faith over fear means we follow to display his character regardless of the consequences. It means that we trust that the riches that we have in Christ are more valuable right now than all of the comfort, any of the comfort that the world's riches provides for us. And that is the way that the Christians in Smyrna were living. The second stone that was laid on the chest of the Christians of Smyrna was slander. Slander, they were being slandered. They were being slandered by the Jews. Slander means they were telling lies about you. And this is probably why they were not able to avoid paying the, the tax to Rome's uh, God. is because... The Jewish people were what is known as a religio licita in Rome, meaning they were free to practice their own religion and were not required to worship at the temple of Rome. And they were originally known as a Jewish sect. So they were covered under their umbrella of religio licita. But the Jews said, and they were so quick to throw the Christians under the Roman bus, no, 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 they're not part of us. We don't know them. They're not anything. No, we, no. Listen, those guys, they're awful. You know what they say. They have another king. We're, we're happy to say, you know, Caesar's king. But they have another king, and his name's Jesus. They're insurrectionists. They want to cause trouble. They want to overthrow. And they were telling lies about the Christians. And they, Christians lost that. As they became religio illicita, which means now they are persecuted. And they are if they will not pay homage to the God of Rome, they will be persecuted. And so these slander, excuse me, these slanders, which were the second thing that kind of laid on their chest, were causing them great, great ills. As a matter of fact, Jesus then, Jesus reminds them to consider the source of these lies. And he says, these are not real Jews. As a matter of fact, they're part of the synagogue of Satan. It, this may really surprise you that Jesus says such harsh words, but remember what he says to them in Matthew when Jesus is walking. He has a lot of really harsh things to say. Whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, to the Pharisees, to the Jews. 
Because the Jews in Jesus' day perpetrated the greatest slander ever. And the, the one bit of slander that will send anyone who believes it to hell. And that is that Jesus is not the Messiah. That was the greatest slander ever perpetrated. Because Jesus, if you read in, in Matthew, Jesus knows that those Jews know that he is the Messiah. It is undeniable. But they slandered him. And they crucified him. Because they did not, they chose their comfort. They chose fear over faith. That's not the Jesus, that's not the way he thought he was going we to, he was going to come. He's not, no, he's not strong enough. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We have the power. We know the things, right? We do the things. And Jesus said, just like he said to the church at Ephesus, you're, you're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside, you're full of death and decay. And he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Choosing faith over fear with regard to slander meant they faced meant that the Christians in Smyrna had to regard the truths of the gospel to override the lies that were being told about them and stand on the truth. I was talking with a friend this week, and uh, we were just marketing about current events, and we, we said, you know, he was saying, there's not a source anywhere that you can trust to tell you the truth these days. It doesn't matter what news channel you listen to, where you get your news from, you cannot trust that they're telling you the truth and the whole truth, and the unspun truth. There's a glut of information about there, but so much of it is tinged with lies, and so much of it is outright lies, and we spend the majority of our time not thinking about the actual news, but trying to figure out what the actual news is. The world's full of lies. James says that God gives us wisdom that anchors us, that keeps us from being waved uh, tossed back and forth on the waves we've got to anger we need that now more than ever anchor ourselves to god's truth because you know there's no one that will tell you more lies than you yourself you won't hear more lies from any other source than your own heart if you are not careful in guarding what you say because if you're listening to yourself talk, if you're listening to the things you tell yourself, you'll tell yourself lies all day long. I'm not good enough. I could never be loved. I can't do that. That's not for me. Well, good Christians could do that, but I can't do that. Well, yeah, a missionary could do that, but I can't do that. Paul could do that, but I can't do that. I could never be loved, truly. If somebody really knew me, oh, I hope no one ever finds out about. You are feeding yourself lies all day long if you're not paying attention and running your thoughts through the Philippians 4.8 filter, which we've talked about, about before. And Paul says to the believers, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think on these things, and the God of truth will be with you. Run your thoughts through these filters because you have an, you have an inner salesman who's selling you lies all day long. 
that run contrary to what God says about who you are and about this world that you live in. Choosing faith over fear means that we must know and stand in the truth. And third, the third uh, stone that was oppressing the Christians at Smyrna was persecution. They were, they were actively being sought out for persecution. In some cases, put to death. The challenge before them was to denounce their faith and bow to the gods of Rome or be beaten in prison, stoned to death. You know, one verse in Scripture that I find puzzling is 2 Timothy 3.12, when Paul tells Timothy, in fact, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. In fact, Paul says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Persecution is not an exception for the believer. It is the norm. Suffering is not the exception of the believer. It is the norm. And I say suffering, I mean suffering for your faith. And suffering for pursuing your faith. I find that verse puzzling because I struggle to find the actual suffering in my life sometimes. And I fail sometimes to recognize what suffering I do have as a place that I need to apply my faith. Because I'm not even thinking about leaning into my faith so much that it hurts. I'm not even thinking about leaning into my faith so much that I'm uncomfortable. Which is the definition of faith. Moving forward to a place that you don't see a way forward. And Jesus is reminding these people, you keep doing this and that is exactly right. You are right on. But I have to ask myself, why don't I feel the pressure? Why don't I feel the weight of the stone? Maybe because my faith doesn't have action. Maybe it's because I don't have that kind of faith. But that is exactly the kind of faith that Jesus is commending them for and calling them to. Faith is being sure of what you hope, and hope for and certain of what you do not see. Fear says, I'm not doing anything that I can't figure out ahead of time. Choosing faith over fear means that you lean in to obedience to the point that it's uncomfortable and that it hurts. That is what faith is. The absence of that means there is a lack of faith. And this is what Jesus is calling them to. One believer at Smyrna that famously demonstrated this choosing faith over fear was an important church father called Polycarp. Um, of course, you'll recognize him by his picture. Um, Polycarp was uh, a disciple of Arrhenius, another important church father. Arrhenius was a direct disciple of John. John, the author of Revelation, the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John. And Polycarp would, would, would retell sitting with Arrhenius, and Arrhenius 
saying verbatim long teachings from John, telling him these things directly from the mouth of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And these words were written not long, like Revelation was pretty fresh during Polycarp's lifetime. When I say fresh, I mean the ink was dry, but just barely. And Polycarp had lived a long life following Christ. But he was was called to be burned at the stake unless he recounted. Uh, He was escorted to the local proconsul Statius Quadratus who interrogated him in front of a crowd of nervous or curious onlookers, and Polycarp seemed unfazed by the interrogation. You can read many different accounts of this this persecution. He carried on a witty dialogue with Quadratus until he lost his temper. Quadratus did and threatened Polycarp. He said, you'll be thrown to the wild beast, you'll be burned at the stake, and so on. And Polycarp just told Quadratus that while the proconsul's fire lasts a little while, the fires of judgment cannot be quenched. Polycarp concluded, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will do. So the governor asked him one more time, asked him to deny Christ's promise, and that if he will, his life will be spared. And the faithful bishop answered, 86 years I have served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? And so the soldiers grabbed him to nail him to a stake, but Polycarp stopped them. And he said, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you, demand, you want from nails. And as he's on the, on the stake, winds blew. And the fire was lit. And the, the winds blew the fire away from him so that he did not die in the fire. And so here's the picture of him. He was then stabbed by someone there so that he would die. And before he was stabbed... He said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Eyewitnesses uh, said that, concluded their account by saying that his death was remembered by everyone. He is even spoken of by the heathen in every place. Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And finally, in brief, those were the three stones that were laid upon them. Poverty, slander, persecution. And finally, Jesus gives them in this letter two encouragements, two great encouragements along the way. The first one is this. The struggle is temporary. The struggle in choosing faith over fear is temporary. He says it will last but ten days. Ten in the Bible. This is not a literal ten days. Ten in the Bible and particularly in uh, the book of Revelation, is very symbolic. Ten refers to the number of completeness. In other words, there is a set amount of suffering you will endure. And then it will be over. The struggle is temporary. And secondly, the stru- the, uh, Jesus encourages them that the, the struggle to choose faith over fear... The struggle is temporary, but the rewards are eternal. The struggle is temporary, the rewards are eternal. To the one who overcomes, he says, I will give the crown of life. Um, An important thing to know, my TV's gone. The important thing to know is they used to do Olympic trials in 
Smyrna. And so they received the crown that you often see in the Olympics um, that they give. They even do that in the modern age sometimes. It's also important to know that Smyrna was known as the crown city because of its beauty and because of its agora that we looked at before with the columns. Uh, it was referred to as the crown city. And Jesus also tells them and reminds them to struggle and choose faith over fear, even unto death. Because you will not be harmed by the second death. This first death is temporary. The second death comes with a judgment and lasts for eternity. And that's where you will receive the crown of life. And you will enjoy the riches that are, that are his in complete forever. So I asked you this morning, what would it look like to choose faith over fear for you and me today? To choose faith over fear in your finances. To do, choose faith over fear in the lies that you hear in this world and that you repeat to yourself. To choose faith over fear rather than comfort. Leaning in to where you're really depending on God for the results. Remember that Jesus is pictured among the lampstands that represent the church, that represent us. He's present, he's involved, he's engaged in your life, in my life. He knows not only our actions, but our hearts. Whatever you're going through, his message to you is hang on. And don't just hang on. Lean in. And choose faith over fear. It gets better. It gets way better. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you give us this encouragement and you give us a faith that is worth anchoring our lives to. A faith that is worth these light and momentary struggles that Paul calls them because they're not to be compared with the glory that you have in store for us. And we thank you for these things. Strengthen us, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We pray that today's message encouraged and inspired you. If you live in the Williamsport region of PA, we'd love to engage you in person. You can find more information on service times, city groups, and our incredible kids and youth ministry at citylions.org. That's citylions.org.